we're talking about meeting and unmaking art schools and we are exploring and retracing via historic approach the complex way that we have um, transmission infrastructure in the institution of schools, especially the ones taken on the African continent and especially art schools. And we can see how it's deployed in Western Africa, namely in Egypt. Before we begin, I would like to apologize to those who tried to watch the um, St. Benef film last night. We had technical issues that we are currently resolving. So we will tell you on the social networks what platform you can use to watch the film and when it will become available. But to get back to today's topic, I'm sure it will resonate very much with yesterday's event. Let us explore youth and the impact of Western and colonial training in various contexts on the African continent, as well as how um, collective artists have nav navigated this context and this dominating structure to then question how various stakeholders, both in the past and now, tried to remake this infrastructure. On some, in some way, they tried to refound it um, in a very contextual manner. Before we present our two guests of today, I would wish to underline that this transmission and training and education topics within the context of art are very dear to our hearts as they are in many different projects and for many stakeholders that we are close to. For example, in Morocco, there are there is a foundation in Marrakesh that is working to um, give a place to um, the transmission, the popular transmission of, of, of this type of art. There's also a Mahala cultural space who was doing research on invisible education. And there is another project that is ongoing around Casablanca. And this has already begun. It started in 2015 and it involves a training program called Madrasa. This has been a frame, the framework that allowed me to meet Oud and Nadine for the first time. And it's a pleasure for me to see them here today. Then in 2016, we co-founded a collective known as Madrasa Collective together with five other people. And this resonates with our topic today because our collective aimed to self-train. This um, became more tangible over time. And we questioned what it meant to be a collective through practice, through experimenting and through what we would call reciprocal contamination. Now today, 
when we speak of Madrasa Collective, we do speak of it in the past or as a finished project. But this round table, this form of exchange is something that was built amongst the different members of the collective. And I think there is a lot of wealth in um, the collective space, even though it can be marginal. Even beyond the art world, these collectives are able to rethink ways of doing things, ways of learning and ways of transferring culture. Now, let me present to you our participants who um, are much more um, established in these topics than me. Nadina Atala works in the Parisien University and at the Sorbonne in a, a laboratory. She um, con looks at the contribution of women to modern audiovisual arts in Egypt. She looks at various topics and she also develops the history of feminist art she has curated several um, uh, modern art um, exhibitions including in conversation a painting show at the american university in cairo in 2019 and beyond the madrasa collective she's also worked in art galleries in paris and beirut then we have Old Christelle Migbash. She is an independent curator and art historian based between the Netherlands and Cameroon. She was a participant of the De Apple in 2018 to 2019. She is um, also co curator of Sunspeak 1920 to 1924, which is an international quad quadrennial in the city of Arnhem if I'm not mistaken. So thank you very much, Auden Nadine, for being here with us today. First and foremost, I would like to ask each of you to briefly tell us about your research and your practice, namely with respect to education and the transmission of knowledge. Nadine, perhaps we can start with you. Yes, hello everybody. Thank you, Francesca, for this invitation. As you said, I'm currently um, doing a PhD that examines women in Egypt rather, rather in the modern period, so not too far back in time with respect to the contemporary um, thread in 54. In narratives, we see a lot in the works carried out in modern art and universities in Europe and in the States. And here we see that actually modern art starts in 1908. We see this date a lot because that was the foundation of the um, modern art school the, um, or the fine art school in Cairo. There, it was an academic institution in the beginning of modern art because before there was no modern artistic expression. Now, the, the, it's an open topic, but what I'm interested in is that in 1908, the fine arts were only open to men. As I work on women, I wanted to question this line of thought because the history of, of fine arts is written in the masculine women only arrive at the school in the beginning of the 1950s. 
this means that there's a whole other history, almost a parallel history of women in modern art that is yet to be written. This is why I wanted to question this history of arts education that is specific to women. In the meanwhile, then, so before the 1950s, there were other modes of transmission of um, teachings in terms of arts, both formal and informal, that was accessible were accessible to women. But it depended on their ability to go and stay abroad, so go to train in European institutions, or their ability to access private um, studios of artists. Therefore, there was a very significant socio-economic filter that um, would do a triage of the women who were able to access this um, arts world, whereas for women, men, this was often free. So there's a difference between the socio-economic profile of men and women at that time, and it's quite um, astounding. So as we look back at this history of teaching, I wondered about documentation and archives and what exists during this very revolutionary period that is to say pre-1950s that that is available in the national archive institute in cairo but it's very difficult the schools themselves say they have no archive it's difficult to access it there are very difficult procedures so I went through the press mainly and I worked on subscriptions to arts trade unions to go back to the first women who received diplomas in the institution to trace their history following interviews. That's it for me. Thank you very much. So Samba, who was at a different event, discussed um, cinema. Samba discussed the violent expropriation of language perpetrated by colonial education. And we also talked about the absence of from resources in the West um, in the teaching curricula. And um, they talked about their own um, trajectory as well. I think Ord has been looking at similar things, similar topics. She's looking at how our personal trajectories are based on lacks or can limits in terms of education and educational institutions, which remain very much anchored to Western ways. So, Gord, could you tell us more about the main axes of your work and how your own training led you to focus on such educational institutions as well as the language used within the context of art? Thank you, Francesca. Before I start, I also want to thank everybody, the whole 154 team for this invitation. Indeed, training and t education has, is, has, is a, a topic that has interested me for personal reasons. 
Yes, we've talked about the history of art, but before that, I actually went to a painting school where I received arts training. They offered secondary education in um, uh, painting and sculpture and ceramics. I went there and I received a whole artist slash technicians training and I was in the painting or fine arts module. There were many programs offered. We had many sources of inspiration. There were references to the history of art that were transmitted to us. And I was curious to find out, for example, why when we speak of art history, there's no intersection between the different geographies. I mean, we feel like as though art belongs to the West, belongs to Europe, and in prehistory, prehistory as well. It was presented to us as, as such. For example, we talk about the great civilizations, Egypt having had a great civilization, but a Western one, it's presented as such. So we can look at various countries and trace the way in which uh, Western teaching evolved. Um, when I finished my training route, I had the idea that this sort of training didn't exist in Africa and I had to really inspire myself through Western authors. When I got to university, my outlook changed a little bit because the arts department, it was the arts history um, the Arts and History Department uh, in Cameroon uh, was actually founded by anthropologists and these individuals were interested in African history and anthropology. So this meant that this aspect uh, really influenced the way in which the history of art was being taught. There was a real interesting focus on some of the cultural elements, the, the, the pre-colonial elements that uh, had influenced uh, the, um, the anthropologists. We were able to see how different tribes had offered themes that could be investigated from an artistic point of view. It was a real surprise for me. I thought, wow, such a rich world of influences. Why aren't these actually being brought into other teaching arenas? It was something that uh, I could really compare with the traditional roots that I'd seen up to that point and something almost taboo if you like um, so it really got me thinking about uh, artistic movements and the way in which art was being taught this uh, led me to start investigating the whole issue of art education and I started to think about how people were being trained and look at different perspectives it led me to also investigating the question and the issue of interest in various issues that could be investigated within artistic training. I started therefore to really go into this, um, this investigation and I've now um, 
finished uh, part of my work on uh, the project um, that I called My Learning is Affected by the Condition of My Life. It's an ongoing project, really. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about this project, please. Um, Aude, my learning is affected by the condition of my life, particularly the historical research that you did. We find an article that was published recently um, in Studio Generale. I'm going to uh, give you the link to this in the chat box if you're interested in, in looking into it. But I wanted to ask you to explain a little bit about your project, uh, what inspired you, the physical manifestations as well, um, when you looked into the pre-colonial influences, and then also how you look at the impact of art teaching and the creation of schools um, on creation itself, artistic creation and artistic works. So perhaps you'd be able to tell us a little bit about that in Cameroon and in, in Africa in a more general sense. Yes, so I started working on my learning is affected by the tradition of my life through an invitation that I had through the um, Studio Generale. And this um, is uh, one of the institutions in our country and it has linked to various universities. It uh, hosts artistic events and actually tries to forge links between the professional arts scene and student artists. So I had this invitation um, through this organization and this really allowed me to launch the project. It was a response to one of the studies they were carrying out. They're, they're still working on it at the moment, in fact. I was particularly interested in the issue of the future of art schools. So the real interest for me was linked to my own uh, questioning about what I envisage as being the future of art schools and art teaching, all the issues that I had looked at, all the criticism that can come in uh, when it comes to the way in which art education is organized, how the discipline uh, is actually viewed and put together. So I started to reflect upon this and I really asked myself the question about what an art school really means. How do we define arts teaching? What is the idea of the school itself as an institution? Um, how do we look at this in, in the past and, and now? And particularly in the African context, we can talk about Charlemagne and historical references, and we can try to look at now how this still influences teaching and study. So I started doing some research on people who had written about this issue, the pre-colonial schools and how art was being taught and uh, how people were being trained before. My research idea wasn't necessarily to actually put together a genealogy as such, but it was more to try to find key elements that it really interested me and to put these forward as elements that could help us look to the future of art schools. 
so the community and collective aspects of creative projects um, in the African scenario. I can take an example that Dr. Chandu actually put forward. I asked uh, this individual to answer some questions for my research and uh, they talked about the Shumam experience. Um, it's a, a type of writing that exists in the Barun area of Cameroon and um, it's a, a tribal influence and so there was a, a, a sort of investigation of this uh, type of artistic production and the way in which the, the, the chiefs of the tribe in, influenced this. There were various collaborative elements at play here. Um, so I actually could go into this a bit and see how these traditions and this artistic teaching was passed on. The, the link between the material realm and the spiritual realm in this particular context. This was one of my collaborative um, projects. And then another example was uh, linked to dream works and the idea of having a, a protocol linked to an artistic vision and the institutionalization of this kind of artistic writing. I involved other individuals in this study as well, and I tried to really look at how various traditional writings and artistic media uh, were passed on from person to person and how a kind of archive could be put together. These are some of the examples uh, that interested me in my project. I also wanted to look at the impact of the Western schools. So not only art schools, but also Western education and, and culture, even in a pre-colonial colonial sense. And what influences came in uh, from this arena in terms of the African context of passing on artistic knowledge? There were some elements that actually have disappeared. So for example, my father told me about how the colonial schools came in and how language became a real issue. So they were forced to speak a colonial language, another language. And of course, this came into the education system. So how did this affect things? And how is this being looked at today in terms of the way in which people express themselves through their languages? I think this is also a relevant issue. So how do we pass things on from generation to generation in, a, in the sense of language? The colonial school is also therefore important to consider in an interdisciplinary sense. How did our grandparents' generation learn, for example? How was learning passed on from generation to generation during that time? Um, if we look at music, painting, sculpture, there are all sorts of issues here in terms of what happened within local societies. There was maybe a more holistic vision at play, but then there was a kind of division that came in, in terms of the various disciplines we can maybe have, uh, therefore, an investigation of the transdisciplinarity of the art word and then the way in which um, people were being trained as, if you like, uh, 
comprehensive cultural beings. And then we had the division of schools. So it was compartmentalized a lot more, the artistic arena. I think all these issues are quite uh, interesting when we look at art schools in general, when we look at the different influences, for example, from music. I talked to my father a lot about that in terms of the language issue as well, the influence of English language music these days, for example, the fact that it's maybe more inaccessible to try to find older recordings and things in a, in a family language. So all these uh, issues are very interesting, I think, when it comes to cultural influences, choreography, musical instruments, performance arts, and even the costumes that are being used within the artistic arena and within performance spaces. All these things are some of the issues I wanted to investigate with this project. My learning is affected by the condition of my life. I know I've spoken a lot. I can speak for, for ages on this subject, but oh yes, absolutely. We're going to come back to it. Um, I think I might just uh, pass the floor to Nadine again uh, for a few minutes now, because we can make some links to your research as well, Nadine, when it it comes to the the modern period and the way in which um, fine art schools in Egypt uh, did influence uh, modern art learning. There are also some issues linked to access um, and individual trajectories within the arts arena. I think when we spoke in the past, uh, we've looked a lot about your work on defining fine arts in Egypt, particularly looking at the colonial and post-colonial context. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that and uh, some of the um, influences on your work and your study um, and, and how some of the most uh, recent transitions and changes have come in. Yes, so the fine arts school that we mentioned before can be investigated in terms of the question of whether or not it's a colonial institution. There are, of course, European links um, in Egypt the founding of this school wasn't a specifically colonial project as such. It's a little bit more complicated. Um, at the beginning, Joseph Kemi was the individual who actually floated the idea and financed the project for this school. And then the management was actually handed over to a French sculptor. Uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, this was. So Egypt was a real... Uh, colonial um, melting pot, if you like, with an Ottoman presence, a French presence, an Italian presence as well, and a British administration. And so there were lots of different influences in play. And the first team that actually managed the school, the first professors were European. The students were Egyptian. And there was a project to actually teach these students to produce uh, arts um, in 
terms of expressing uh, Egyptian identity. So this was the original idea. They, uh, they learned Western art forms and artistic techniques, but the idea was that they were going to convey their experience as Egyptians. So they would paint Egypt, if you like. That, that was the, uh, the idea. And uh, I have a colleague who's looked a lot at this issue and uh, tried to show the hybrid element of this. So all the different influences that came in and the emergence of modern artistic expression in Europe. And the idea was to uh, look at the appropriation of European artistic techniques and bring in applied arts techniques uh, from uh, Egyptian knowledge. So the first Egyptian director of the score came in 19 only in 1937, so almost 30 years after it opened. It was the painter Nagi, and I would, I would add, going back to the history of women there. At the same time, even before that, in the 1920s, they organized themselves in feminist organizations, especially with um, Rodeshan Arab. And from the 1920s onwards, they opened schools to teach the arts to women, but in a more artisanal fashion. There was a Egyptian feminist union and they gave um, women in the popular classes to to learn these practices but this was more to from remuneration purposes the egyptian feminist union at the same time ran a campaign for women to be admitted to the fine arts school they tried uh, several times and in 1930 this was accepted on principle meaning that society could admit accept the idea but the person who then accepted it changed roles for whatever reason and the principle was forgotten until 1930 and it was not until 1938 that the demand um, came about again. The feminist arguments need to be placed within the framework of the time, meaning that Egypt was going undergoing decolonialization and so women being admitted to fine arts school is part of a whole campaign to improve the conditions of education for women in Egypt at the time. The main argument being that educating women is a part of national emancipation. This is a recurring argument that is seen within the intellectuals during the Arab Renaissance. And it is part of the Amin rhetoric. I mean, being a legal worker and one of the feminist voices of um, Egypt saying th who says that by education and the emancipation of women this can lead to a nation where all individuals are emancipated and able to think for themselves thus it is for the common good of constructing a new emancipated country these de process of decolonialization, the struggle of this, played a central role in this um, demand for access to these inst 
educational institutions and from the 1930s onwards little by little this institution was the institutions were opened up to women following 1938 after a speech by Susanna Barrow one of the feminists of the Egyptian feminist union following the speech this acceptance happened and in her speech she pledged her the peaceful mission of the arts as well as arts by women that as a useful tool there were some stereotypical arguments of artistic women and decorate um the the decoration aspect of women but before 1938 there was the development of an institute for women to learn fine arts this institution this um, institution has two different names me but it really meant it was an educational arts institute first to teach drawing teachers women teachers because women could either learn applied arts at that time or become drawing teachers but the difference between that and fine arts is that um, this was governmental and the educational team, the teachers, these they were all Egyptian. Egyptians trained in England, but the courses were in Egyptian. And the aim was to replace the drawing teachers who were already there in the primary and secondary um, educational institutions who were all British. So the artistic development of Egyptians in women became governmental and this created a big difference compared to the men's trajectory within the institution of fine arts. This institute is part of an Egyptianization process of the um, educational institutions. So within the framework again of decolonialization. Within the institutes, the um, directors and everybody modified the teaching methods before they prioritized ways of doing things that pertain to children at school. So they taught art to women in the same way that it was taught to children. So for example, they just copied postcards. There were no models. There was a grid, and we still do this for children, by the way. It was about um, uh, producing an identical reproduction of a drawing within a grid, and the professors um, slowly rejected such methods to then prefer free expression and the development of the artistic practices on a professional level as well as personal expression not just um, what was then considered as the good training of a good housewife from a certain society. Finally, in 1951, 1952, around that time, women accessed the fine arts and they went via a competition to follow mixed education with all the advantages. There are advantages to a co-education, both for training, but also in terms of social, social, the social life, the, 
the exchanges, meet the networking, meeting people where one can exhibit, that can help you exhibit and sell. Obviously, um, the nude classes were um, challenging. This was why women were, for, were, were kept away from the fine arts because they should not be within, um, within, in a room with nudes. It would be scandalous. This was the argument in many, many countries. This is um, the delay that we have within colonial history in terms of teaching men and teaching women. You talked about this a little and also in previous conversations, we've talked about a general point that I find quite interesting that affects your research and that's the complex relationship between the movements as well as the 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 trajectory of different stakeholders together along with the infrastructure inherited by uh, from colonialism it reminds me of yes mina lagad's project she was here just a few days ago in this forum we dreamt of utopia and we woke up screaming She talks about the infrastructure of the radio. If there is a focus on art schools, which were then adapted almost as poetic levers within the framework of new political objectives. And on state level, It was about the project of independence, which was often modernistic and, of course, nationalistic. Potentially, this could be described as failed because of the mechanisms that are close to the colonial education systems. At the same time, during these years of independence, there were new trajectories opened up, both within and outside of um, the um, different institutions that were already established. What's interesting, I think, is to explore the different experiences and trajectories. And so, Nadine, Perhaps you could tell us more about some specific trajectories of artists, women who navigated the, the systems, especially the institutional systems of the fine arts schools and the emancipation or the detraction from emancipation that they experienced. Well, yes, um, for example, there's an artist, one of the most famous ones in Egyptian modern art, uh, known as Flotoun. She was known as a feminist and communist activist. She was one of the first women to go to public university in Egypt, if I remember well. She went to the Lettre University. She was a member of the aristocracy. aristocracy. And this was quite a rare thing to see aristocratic women at a governmental public university. 
and she was actually trained in the arts and received her training from private tutors, which I explained before. She was born in 1924. She was a part of the generation who saw the arrival of the institution and the opening up of the fine arts, but started her training before. She had private tutors. She had a professor who probably came to her school, a famous artist, and she was give, her family gave her the opportunity to go to the art school in Paris, as they often go to France, but she refused. She refused for nationalistic reasons. She felt it was important to stay within the local institutions. And so she continued to train when in other private studios, namely with a Swiss artist. She trained with Mohammed Rabdallah and Tahim Halim, painters who had private studios. And when um, the fine arts became co-ed, she did not strictly integrate the main circuit, but she attended night school in what was called the free section. This free section was meant to allow everyone, especially those who who worked within the day to follow um, cl classes in the evening. She worked in the day, yes. And so she then found herself in a very socially varied and culturally varied class. And she, the press described her classes as almost like a UN meeting because of there was such a diversity of nationalities. And so this is quite an exemplary trajectory of a woman navigating the scene prior to the opening of fine arts to women. Then even once the fine arts were open to women, it was no simple thing. Let me give you the example of one of the first women who received a diploma in painting, Ms. Hussein. She's a painter who was barely known. I hardly found any information on her apart from a series of art press articles about her who were interested in her story. She received her diploma for the first time in 1953. And um, she worked in a psychiatric hospital to obtain her diploma. So let us imagine these young women going to some local hospital in Cairo where she painted a whole host of um, of um, of canvases of the um, depicting the psychiatric hospital unfortunately I haven't found any pictures of it I'd love to see she painted people with their hair in disarray and odd positions in strange rooms but she was censored by the diploma jury and so she was not able to obtain her diploma for moral reasons because her work did not respect tradition thus she had to rework her her portfolio she presented her candidacy once again having camouflaged the body parts that disturbed and finally she obtained her diploma but what was quite tragic was that that same year in 1953 one of her colleagues uh, called Sabrera who uh, this is a man who actually became a portrait painter that was quite renowned in Egypt he also presented a project talking about the women of the night 
This is a series of paintings of prostitutes, but he had no issues presenting. Um, he, re he was lauded and um, he received his diploma. So you can see this double speed um, within the institution, even after women were admitted. Thank you very much. Uh, that's an interesting uh, story, isn't it? An interesting uh, look at how women came into the art school and uh, some of the things that actually fed in in the post-independence uh, issue uh, era. There were obviously some uh, Western influences at play, but also a lot of uh, interesting projects from uh, different schools that uh, perhaps influenced the fine arts school. Um, there were also certain spaces, I think, um, growing up, weren't there, for production and for, for artistic exchanges. So perhaps the community element of things came in. I wanted to uh, ask you maybe to share some uh, experiences uh, from, from both of your contacts and both of your works now um, linked to the various forms and spheres um, that perhaps came in to influence uh, the schools in the more modern time. There is actually a tension that exists between um, art schools as such, uh, or the vision that we can have of them today, and the social and political context of the African continent, uh, particularly Western Africa and countries that have spaces that have gone through the colonialization process. So I think there's this tension, this, this quite interesting uh, um, link um, between the fact that official schools were often created in the 1950s uh, in Nigeria, for example, the first uh, Nigerian College of Art was introduced in 1952 within the very much a context of students claiming their right to have this university branch. In Senegal, um, this was uh, 1948, the first uh, arts and music and dramatic arts college um, founded in that country. So this was more of a music school and dance school, but there was an artistic uh, element of it as well. Um, this was created by a lawyer. Um, so this 1948 was the date, as I said, and after a few years, um, there was a whole reform that went on through the president and then the uh, National School of Art was created in Senegal. There was actually a link with uh, Mali and Bamako as well. There's another example I can take in Congo, um, the first academy, um, the it was in 1942 under the Mobutu regime, and uh, this included um, courses, classes in ceramics, painting and decoration, and um, also advertising and other um, disciplines like that. And so there were more institutional schools set up and initiated by the state. Um, with quite a lot of foreign influence, and then other more informal forms of school that were created perhaps more through local artists or individuals who were already practicing on a local level. 
there were also um, some painting schools uh, that uh, came in that were um, really influenced by Europeans. So Pierre Lourdes, for example, uh, set up the first painting school um, that's really recognized in Western Africa. Um, this individual had an art workshop in his own house, his own premises, and uh, he actually therefore had the idea of expanding and uh, actually founding an art school, encouraging Congolese people who were interested in arts to uh, really express themselves through uh, drawing and painting and represent Africa through their eyes. So this was a different way of influencing the arts scene and the arts education arena. There are other examples uh, of these ways in which uh, artists lay claim to their own African identity through art. Uh, we can look at European masters or teachers who came in and who influenced these schools, but who were very much looking to a modern arts type of teaching. In Nigeria, there's a group of students uh, who I studied who actually decided to form a collective in order to really counteract some of the dominant currents. Uh, not in a necessarily in a radical sense, but to introduce a new, more local way of uh, looking at artistic production. In 1958, Uchio Keke with Simone Keke and Dima Simuku, some of these students um, actually got together and decided to formally found a society the Nigerian Art Society. They set up a whole program. It was an informal program uh, linked to um, really reconciling artistic traditional practices and Western arts practices. This uh, was linked to post-colonial modernism as a school and in Cameroon there are also examples um, from the 1980s for example Menin Muputa and Maduta created by an artist who was presented as really the the father or pioneer of Cameroon modern art um, this individual set up a an artistic circle including Rikin Kangola, who unfortunately um, died very recently, I think two weeks ago, Samuel Ebile and other artists. These individuals got together to actually form associations and they called this the Liberal Arts School. The focus was on sharing and caring and solidarity. So not just artistic practice in isolation, but really forging links within the uh, 
post-colonial context um, it was still obviously in its infancy really uh, so the idea was to really forge these links with um, artistic laboratories Isasin formed one of these uh, linked laboratories there were also societies for performers and writers and the idea was to transform the artistic nature of, of, of production um, and go away from the more formalist currents so to go uh, over and above uh, what was already being produced to go into a more experimental realm separating themselves from art as it had been produced um, up until that point so these were some of the ways that i think collectives and individuals actually came in to really transform the artistic context and try to create an alternative alternative to the more traditional institutions within the African context. Thank you very much. Uh, lots of information. It's a very uh, a dense topic of study, isn't it, with all these specific uh, examples and influences that, that uh, come in. We're arriving towards the end of our setting a session today so i just wanted to see if there are any comments or questions now from our audience please don't hesitate to write a chat box if you have anything you'd like to ask or any comments to make um, and then we can we can ask nadine and Aud. let's just have a look i'll see if i can read the the box now the chat box so there's something coming from joshua and i'm going to read this in english for you um, i've read that the egyptian avant-garde in the 40s were becoming wary of the structures of nationalist frameworks for art making which i understand were historically associated with another uh, paradigm and the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Cairo. Did these concerns about nationalism in art temporarily dissolve during the Nasser period, or how did women artists navigate these debates? I imagine some women artists may have felt caught between belonging in the national community fostered by the state, and on the other hand, uh, belonging to a progressive art community fostered by the avant-garde. Thank you, Josh, for this question. Je vais répondre en français parce que je sais qu'il y a une interprétation. Euh, en fait, je pense que le, les avant-gardes dont tu parles, c'est spécifiquement le groupe euh, Art et Liberté, euh, qui est un groupe euh, qui, euh, qui est rattaché au surréalisme euh, à l'international euh, et euh, qui effectivement euh, se révolte contre cette tendance nationaliste dans les arts modernes en Égypte et euh, notamment au Salon du Caire euh, qui est euh, le salon organisé annuellement par la Société des Amis de l'Art qui fait un peu office de salon de l'Académie, enfin ce serait un équivalent si on veut comparer avec les structures européennes pour dire à c'est un art quand même soutenu, soutenu par, les, par les élites et, et par le, le pouvoir en place. Euh, mais cette tendance nationaliste, en fait, elle ne se dissout pas du tout pendant le nazisme. Au contraire, euh, à partir de euh, donc la révolution 1952 et plus particulièrement euh, de 1956 avec euh, l'arrivée de Nasser comme président 
et 58, la constitution du ministère de la Culture, le, le régime met vraiment la main sur toutes les formes d'expression. Alors, la presse nationalisée, les, les artistes sont recrutés pour travailler au service de l'État, notamment à travers des bourses de, de production qui leur permettent de s'affranchir des... En fait, ce sont des bourses, c'est comme un salaire sur un, un an ou plusieurs années qui leur permettent de s'affranchir des impératifs économiques et de travailler librement. Euh, des missions, des missions de, de voyage, notamment au Égypte, pour documenter la Nubie au moment où on crée le haut barrage à Swan et les terres nubiennes sont inondées. Euh, des missions pour aussi promouvoir la construction du barrage comme un grand progrès euh, technique euh, qui va apporter euh, l'électricité, euh, réguler l'eau, etc. sur le territoire. Donc, euh, donc, il y a vraiment une campagne euh, de propagande qui est menée par l'État. Mais ça ne veut pas dire qu'on doit nécessairement considérer que tout art produit en Égypte euh, à cette période est, euh, est un art euh, nationaliste. Euh, c'est beaucoup plus compliqué que ça, c'est des parcours individuels. Les femmes, comme les hommes, ont bénéficié de ces bourses dont je parle. Elles ont été sollicitées dans les différentes missions. There's a lot of individual um, contacts that came in as well, um, showing specific individuals who actually um, tried to counteract these propaganda trends. Um, there were certain paintings actually produced uh, showing um, abstract ways of counteracting the very mechanical production that had been encouraged. So there were some quite interesting currents uh, that I think is something I'd like to, to look into. It, it's very simplistic to really try to consider artists within this dictatorial or controlled context. Um, it, it's, it's something that I feel did have a big influence on many of the, the, the big names. Um, nationalism was something that could be correlated with a decolonialization process. There was a kind of intimate political link here. Um, and I think this did affect the arts world and the resistance movements that were being set up um, did actually uh, exist. There were artists that were thinking that they did not want to become state artists. Uh, perhaps, uh, I know it's not the heart of our exchange at the moment, but I, I can have a lot to say on this. I think maybe I should, I should wrap up there. So I think uh, Dominique is asking a question now as well. Dominique's been looking at uh, some of the contexts that you're um, investigating as well and wants, wants to know about uh, design and whether or not there's a specific design element uh, that we can look at here, perhaps uh, with regard to specific uh, artistic pathways, um, education, design education specifically. In this case, um, it's not particularly about design, 
But um, if I had to refer to the design practice and how it is practiced by artists on the scene within in the 70s and 80s, I'd say the design was is not how we see it today, but rather it started by with painting for advertisements. That was the first time where we saw such a practice to make money to 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 earn a living. In my research, I don't have much access to this information. On my end, it's the same. I can't, cannot really speak of design, but know that in the fine arts school, we one does talk of decor. There's um, there's a department. It's still there where we talk, where one learns about interior design, the design of objects and graphic design. And so there's a certain number of artists, I suppose, who um, came about through these circuits. And then there's the School of Applied Arts. It's a little bit more rain. Uh, it's a little bit older. I, I do not know it well. We have another question now by Amina, who is wondering whether you have examples of informal or formal links between the different schools you mentioned in your presentations and are there traces of exchanges and influences especially surrounding big events such as the festivals in 1966 in Dakar or 77 in Lagos or even the via journals and magazines do you have any references to this end I'm giving you the mic there. I'm trying to think of an answer in my head. Um, in terms of formal links, I don't know. Um, I am uh, I'm not able to, to put together a, a response. Pardon? Are there maybe different types of exchanges and collaborations between, for example, if I understood well, between schools in Western Africa and, for example, the schools in Egypt and or within the different regions in Egypt? Let me answer quickly. I think, now I don't know them so well, but I know that there are 
students from India namely or from unaligned countries who come to study for a semester or a year in Egypt. Now I don't know the frameworks, there are exchanges, there are grant systems that go both ways actually. A student from the educational institute went to India for a year, you know, it's going to India for a year. I have many um, traces of trips made by um, Egyptian female students who went to study the fine arts abroad in a formal way. Then there being formal ties between two establishments specifically, nothing springs to mind, although I'm sure there might have been in my own research. Most of the links were made on a local level. So for example, in Cameroon, together with collectives in Douala and Yaoundé, there, there, were, there was an exchange in terms of the organization of local events. For example, like the festival. There was a there were exchanges of this type. There was a group of artists in Yaoundé where there were more students from the University of Yaoundé. There was this type of exchange, but I, to my knowledge, do not know that there were exchanges, for example, between Central Africa and Western Africa, for example, Ghana. No, not to my knowledge, but there were exchanges between artists in Cameroon and abroad. They went abroad and then locally went trained other artists upon their return. But that's still a link between the West and Africa. But with the framework of Africa, even to this day, it remains a problem because there isn't much exchange between the countries. It's beginning. This is beginning, but to my knowledge, not yet. I mean, there was an exhibition on exchange recently between quote unquote the third world and the second world as well. There was a lot of collaboration to this end within the educational institutions within the entire communist sphere and then between the different countries who became independent. This was both for people with technical profiles, engineers and such, but also artists. In fact, there are pro there is work that traces back collaborations and as a reference, indirectly, for Amina, 
if she does not know, she could potentially find answers in a project that was carried out a few years ago called Modernité Nomade, Nomad, Nomadic Modernity, which traces the various trajectories that existed in over different territories, especially around that type of period. Now, I've had a, received a quick private message from Olivia. He was a super assistant for the 154 Forum, and she is saying that we should really begin to wrap up. I would like to invite Auden Nadine to to say anything if you have any final comments to make perhaps on the present day and the spaces for learning if there's anything you would like to share very briefly i would give you the floor before we wrap up In the current situation, the um, Cairo Fine Arts School still exists. And the Institute for the Young Women has undergone many fusions and remoldings. There is um, an artistic um, educational establishment. And now today, it's not so much about a colonial or non-colonial establishment, but rather these places are criticized of being somewhat obsolete and they have not updated their ways of teaching. Neither are they sufficiently training students so that they can integrate the contemporary art scene on an international level. So the dynamic is somewhat reversed. What's regrettable is that it, they are not open enough to the rest of the world and not enough tools are provided to integrate the world scene. Therefore, this dynamic has really changed. There are also some private initiatives, uh, in particular Mass Alexandria, uh, which was founded by Weisho, the artist, and uh, there's an English language teaching program there, uh, SILAS, the Cairo Institute of Liberal Arts and Sciences. There's the Mekutker University with a plastic arts department. Um, but all these examples are teaching in English with some Egyptian teachers who come in, uh, some invited teachers. Um, the program can be quite diverse. Ben Ami, for example, was involved. Um, we could ask various questions about the way in which these programs are organized. Uh, and I think there are some issues that come up here um, on a social level. Um, they're paid programs, so uh, there's a question of access as well. Yes, yes, I think I can maybe just uh, 
continue what uh, Nadine said by saying I am asking some of the same questions with regard to the different forms of institutional art transmission today. It's important to say that there are a lot of projects that are uh, being set up at the moment. For example, ASICO, which was founded by Bisi Silva. It's a great project. I think it will ho I hope it will be able to continue. Um, the idea was to really place the emphasis on uh, looking to research into theoristians, thinkers, um, that really uh, talked a lot about the the, the art African art context, the issue of African art history, etc. Through it creating links uh, between the different countries on our continent. This is a program that uh, went from place to place as well. So it's very interesting to look at the way in which uh, this particular program went outside the classroom context to try to really go to uh, other environments uh, closer to other contexts, other artistic contexts. These are forms of teaching which I think should be an inspiration for us, more homogenous arts teaching forms. So we can have this interdisciplinarity and try to be more homogenous and, and look at local and uh, community contexts. And thank you very much for the opportunity today. Thank you. Thanks very much to both of you for your uh, sharing and some fruitful exchanges. We're looking forward to our last uh, event um, with a film to share with you soon as well. I'd like to therefore thank all those involved today, the organizers, the speakers. I'd like to thank the fair and Olivia in particular, who helped us set this all up. Um, she's really worked hard behind the scenes. So I'd like to thank her for all the time she's spent preparing and presenting our conversations. I'd also like to thank all the listeners today for being with us, uh, our audience, and all those who have participated in the various meetings that we've organized. I think uh, that's it. I'd like to wish you all a lovely afternoon. Thank you once again. And for those who are following us uh, in Marrakesh, uh, we'd like to invite you to another event on the 18th, um, to, at the 18th, you know, our, our site uh, for our next uh, exhibition. Awal. So for those of you who can join us, that would be fantastic. Um, so thank you once again. And uh, thank you, Francesca. Thank you. And hope to see you soon.